0: get a little bit of a running head start. Uh, Chapter 12, Gospel of Matthew, uh, verse 9. (coughs) We're told that when Jesus departed from there, that he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. Literally, this word withered, it's a dead, parched. There's no life in the hand. We don't know if it was caused by an accident, or if it was some type of a handicap caused at birth. Uh, But his hand is not working. It's dead. Useless. We're told they asked Jesus, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then Matthew actually gives us a little bit of insight, some commentary into the motivation of the question, and and even more likely the the fact this man happened to be there. Matthew tells us that they asked him the question that they might accuse him. Then Jesus said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him, how they might destroy him. While most of our commentary of this particular passage was covered last Sunday, I wanted to give you guys just a little bit of a personal insight into how this passage kind of impacted me on just a a gut level. So last Tuesday, I went and met with a, a neurologist and the neurologist gave me what what can only be described as terrible news. Uh, He, after doing a few tests, had concluded that I have, uh, that some of my ailment with my arms is a result of what's called an ICU neuropathy. It can also be called critical illness polyneuropathy, but it's a a neuropathy. So it's a disease uh, caused by prolonged immobilization, uh, sedation, um, etc. What was particularly alarming about... That diagnosis is that um, recovery would be in the years, uh, not the months, um, which was honestly a gut punch. Uh, so that night I, I came home and uh, relayed what the doctor had told had told me to my wife Jessica, and um, the kids went to bed, and 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 just fully transparent, uh, we shed quite a few tears Tuesday night. Again, a week. For me, it was like I had in my mind I'd be back throwing the ball with the kids uh, by springtime, by baseball season, and it just didn't seem like that was a possibility. Wednesday, had a little bit of resolve, kind of bucked up. Stop pitying yourself, Zach. You know, you got to remind mind over matter. You got to remind these limbs what they're supposed to be doing. Thursday, went into the office to start working on the Bible study, (laughs) I should have read ahead. Because of all of the weeks to open up and to work your way through a passage and to encounter a man with a withered hand, it happened to be that week of all weeks. And again, I'm in my office listening to Pastor Joe Foch teach through this passage, balling my eyes out. Never, I've never read a miracle and been envious, you know? Like that's kind of, it was a whole new experience where you read about a miracle and you're like, I want that to happen. And then I was jealous that he had at least one good arm, you know? I found myself like, this guy with the withered, I got two. The Lord started speaking to me. Started telling Zach, will you believe my word? Because that's really, we talked about this last Sunday, Unique to this miracle, Jesus didn't touch him. You know, he didn't reach out his hand and, and and make contact. He just spoke to him. He said, stretch out your hand. An impossible command. But would the man believe God's word? And so in the, in the attempt, the, the act of faith, trusting in God's word, you're not going to give me a command if there's not a purpose behind it. The man, with whatever strength he had, pulled out that arm, and in that moment, a miracle happened, an incredible miracle. Not just the withered, hand regaining its form and shape and Jesus adding muscles and uh mobility to the this guy didn't even need occupational therapy afterwards you know he didn't even need a physical therapist I mean it was as whole as the other And a moment and the Lord spoke to me and said Zach will you trust my word will you believe my word well, what word well how about for starters I work all things for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purposes. And it's like, oh, that's not a fun passage to think about in the midst of trial. But will you trust me? Will you believe me? That I have a plan. Okay, Lord. And I, I got up here and I taught this passage last Sunday and I, I worked my way through it. Now, I'll fast forward to this week. So I was given a diagnosis, but I needed to have two different tests done to confirm the diagnosis. And so this week, Thursday, after therapy, I went to a facility there in Duluth, and they did uh, a uh, a neural connectivity test, which is terrible. Um, Side note, terrible, very painful, not fun. And an ENG, which is where they literally put rods into your muscles and you have to tense them up. All of this to gauge whether or not the nerves are communicating the right way, the muscles are getting the right information. Again, to confirm critical illness neuropathy. When the test was over, the neurologist that conducted the test looked at me. He says, I'm not supposed to say anything, but you need to know that you have no signs of neuropathy at all. That in fact, the neuropathy is whether it was there or not, it's not there now. And we can directly attribute you to pinch nerves uh, the and radial, the radial nerve in the back of the elbow on both sides and a pinch nerve on the side of both of my knees from just the way that I laid in the hospital bed for extended period of time in the ICU. I said, well, what, what's, what's, what does that mean, Doc? He said, you'll be good in a couple months. Now, I'll never be. I'll never be good. I'm still a disaster, a walking disaster. But then I had to take a moment. I'm, and I'm just again speaking. Was I debated whether or not I was going to start this direction, and didn't make that decision until I stood here. Did the Lord heal me? The doctor was very confident it was neuropathy, and was very wrong. Was this a test of faith? I don't know. But will you trust God's word even when the command seems to be impossible? In all of our lives, and whatever the things that we're facing, there's always these moments where, where we're where, where hit with something and we would have to take a step back and it's like, how am I going to handle that? Am I going to trust God? Am I going to hold fast to that anchor of the soul that he loves me? That as as stated by the prophet Jeremiah, that his thoughts towards me are thoughts of peace and not evil. That he has a future and a hope. For me, I was placed in a situation, as your pastor, Lord speaks to me first, and I try to relay that to you. Will you trust my word? And I say with humility, timidity, yes, I will trust his word. And will you? With whatever it is that you're facing, whatever that command is to stretch out, whatever's dead that you don't think can be brought to life, will you trust his word? Now, if you're working your way through the gospel of Matthew, which, which we are, but let's say you're doing this for the first time. You, you, you're learning about Jesus, for the first time through this gospel narrative, the end of this particular story would come across shocking. Now, for us, it doesn't really uh, come across very shocking because we know the story. We know how it plays out. We know what happens to Jesus. We know about the resurrection. We know how the story ends. But if you don't, let's say, and you're, this is all fresh, this is all new, truthfully, verse 14 hits you funky, doesn't it? Here, Jesus, yes, it's the Sabbath, who cares? It's church. And there's a man with a withered hand, and Jesus ministers to him, and he heals him. I mean, this is a great thing, a powerful thing. And I mean, good grief, you've been working your way through the story. You've got example after example after example of Jesus doing the miraculous, the amazing. I mean, meeting people and their need and what he's been communicating, what he's been preaching is powerful. Filled with hope and joy. But you get to verse 14, and as a result of all this stuff, we're told the Pharisees went out and they plotted against him how they might destroy him. Like, are we talking about the same guy? You know? And it strikes you really funky. The animosity, the hatred, the jealousy, the motivation here that they might destroy him. And thus Mark's a transition of sorts in our travels through the ministry of Jesus. Again, it's hard to, to, to lay things out with a, a, a hard definitive outline, but broadly speaking, if you were going to divide the ministry of Jesus threefold into three sections, the first section is, is about a year in which Jesus is ministering in basic obscurity. Not a lot of people know about him. What he's doing is, is, is isolated to a particular region, Uh, He's still developing a bit of a following. The first year, Jesus is doing some amazing things, uh, but not a lot of people know about him, which then, uh, obviously, transitions to a period of incredible, wide-ranging popularity, where now multitudes, masses are following him. Now, that continues into this third and final year of Jesus' ministry, but there is now a, a marked opposition, a period of opposition. Jesus is making enemies. Enemies that are very powerful, very determined, very conniving. This is the religious establishment. They basically can enact any type of punishment second to death. Only Rome could sentence a person to death. And these men now are plotting how they might not silence Jesus, not discredit Jesus, but how they might destroy Jesus. Verse 15, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them, verse 16, not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, and then and then Matthew will quote Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, which we'll get to in a moment. So the narrative, Jesus, he understands what's happening. He's not naive to this opposition. He knows they're powerful. He knows their influence. He knows it's reaching. So he's not picking an unnecessary battle. He withdra- withdraws from there. He moves on. Now people follow, great multitudes. and And again, Jesus ministers to all of them just Matthew summarizing the the scope, the impact. And as we've seen before, Jesus, as he's performing these miracles, understanding the opposition, he's telling people to just kind of keep this on the DL. Now, the irony of sorts is that Jesus is giving his followers an instruction at this juncture. An instruction, by the way, they disobey. You know, we saw that back with the leper. Jesus heals the leper, tells him to present himself to the temple. It says, don't tell anyone. He goes, he presents himself at the temple, and then he tells everyone. You know, it's, 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 it's ironic of sorts that Jesus would tell his followers during his ministry, don't tell anyone what I'm doing. They, in turn, go and tell everyone. To us, with the Great Commission, Jesus tells us to go tell everyone. And we often go tell no one the irony yet people are spreading word now you got to keep in mind that the motivation behind such a kind of an interesting instruction is that Jesus is functioning he's operating on a bit of a timeline he has a timeline in mind in fact Jesus has a very particular time he wants to come to Jerusalem during the passover he's got that week lined out he has a particular day he wants to make his entry foretold by the prophet Daniel, Jesus is on a timeline. He has it under control, and he's trying to temper down a a bit of the popularity, a bit of the word spreading, and and Matthew gives us insight. Now, Matthew, Levi, uh, grew up as a a religious individual and a religious family. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other uh, of the gospel authors, And, and he does a lot of connecting actions and activities of Jesus back to kind of their Old Testament precedent, prophecy. and He does this in this, this case. Hey, if you think it's kind of odd that Jesus, while he was healing everyone, while he was performing great miracles and, and incredible signs, why he would try to keep everything, you know, tempered down, well, it's to fulfill something that Isaiah said about the Messiah. And let's look at it. Isaiah prophesying says, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. This is God speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus. I will put my spirit upon him, which we've seen before during Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descending in power. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. The idea being articulated is that the Messiah, he would come in power. He would have an anointing. He'd be filled with the Spirit. He would be active. But he wouldn't be self-promoting, is, is, is the notion that Isaiah is getting at here. He wouldn't be out there trying to, trying to gin up a following, trying to develop a, 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 some type of a, of a ripple culturally. The Messiah would come and he would just do his thing. And power. There wouldn't be a whole bunch of of fanfare or fluff or advertisements. It would be simple ministry. That word would spread, but Jesus would temper it down because he wasn't a self-promoter. And then verse 20, we're told, A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles will trust, or in some other translations, the nations will trust. The The image here of, of a bruised reed he will not break, or a smoking flask he will not quench. Again, kind of idioms, descriptions, illustrations that, that this particular culture would have been very familiar with. A lot of measurements were taken by a reed. If a reed was was damaged, it could break. Uh, it became very brittle. Um, so Jesus is this kind of a, a fancy way of illustrating his gentleness, his meekness. A smoking flask, he won't quench, he he knows how to work a wick. He's tender, he's careful, he's calculated. He's not a bull in a china shop. I listened to one pastor kind of describe this, that Jesus is not the kind of man that kicks a man when he's down. He's kind. But he will send forth justice, and in his name Gentiles will trust you know, I can't help but note just how, how contrary the ministry of Jesus is, was to the way that church ministry is often carried out today. Churches, pastors, sad to say, are often very much into self-promoting or trying to build a great following or their little kingdom. It's interesting, Jesus, if we're modeling ministry, Jesus just did what he was called to do. He didn't want the attention. He didn't need to to get a billboard to let people know what God was up to or spend a lot of the church budget on advertisement. He's real simple, isn't he? And he's gentle. And he's just doing what God called him to do and he's doing everything he can to, like, temper down the exposure, not to ramp it up. Jesus stayed out of the spotlight as much as he could. Well, verse 22, Matthew continuing, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed. Now, If you think you've got it bad, check this guy out. He's demon-possessed, he's blind and mute. I mean, that's a terrible trifecta, to be blind to not be able to, to speak and then to be possessed. Not quite sure how anyone knew he was possessed, you know, because he can't talk and he's blind. But I mean, this guy, to be, to be filled with darkness, to be unable to communicate and then to be spiritually tortured. I mean, how brutal. What a plight. And then we're told, and again, y- you kind of wish that Matthew had given us a little more detail. but He just says that Jesus healed him. So that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. You know, there is kind of a movement within Christianity that tries to tether all physical ailments to some type of demonic spiritual influence. The devil's behind this, and the devil's behind that. You got to cast the. De- this is an example where there is a spiritual condition, an affliction, that is manifesting into a physical uh, a physical problem. His blindness and him being mute directly attributed to this possession. That being said, you can point out a myriad of other miracles in which a physical malady or deformity can't be attributed to some type of demonic possession. So it's inappropriate to try to take a passage like this out to an extreme and look for the, the devil behind everything. You know, this person's got a, this, a, the, the demon of such and such. Again, if you've been around Southern culture for any period of time, you've run across certain churches that, that have this particular perspective on all kinds of things. You know, it's, it's the devil in the music devil in the the movies, it's the devil behind this and behind that. This guy, there was a demon behind his possession, behind his ailments. Jesus healed him. We can assume by casting the demon out. Mentioned it before, we'll note it again, that what makes this miracle so radical in its cultural context is that you did have exorcists within Judaism. So the Pharisees scribes, there were exorcists that were active and functioning during this day and age. And yet there was an assumption that in your mechanisms by casting the demon out, that the first step in order for you to have dominion over the demon would be to get the individual to say the demon's name, for the demon to speak out, and then you give them some authority. So if you get the name, then you can, in the name of God, cast it out. But people possessed that couldn't talk will... It was, it was a write-off. We don't even deal with those cases because it's impossible to get the name of the demon. And then, so this is some strong demon, some insurmountable possession. And yet Jesus, almost just kind of haphazardly, <laughs> he heals him. Now, verse 23, all of the multitudes, they were amazed. Literally, they're dumbfounded. They're shocked, astounded. And they said, could this be the son of David? Now, understand what's happening here. Jesus, at this point, he's seen as a rabbi, he's seen as a teacher. He's even perceived to be a prophet, maybe even within the line or his associations with John the Baptist. But there's a a big divide within the public perception as to who Jesus really was. Because Jesus had been going around claiming to be more than a prophet, more than just a a, a miracle worker. He's, He's made claims of deity, messianic attributions, that he's the Christ. Now, there's a problem within the public perception because the way they viewed the Messiah and the way Jesus was articulating and presenting himself as the Messiah, there was a disconnect, a hard one for some to even overcome. People saw in this day that the Messiah would be a king, a literal king that would lead the people in revolution against Rome, that would lead them out of their captivity and bondage, that would rule and reign on a literal throne in Jerusalem. That's how they saw the Messiah. And yet Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah, is doing a lot of things that they just didn't associate. They didn't connect. And yet now at this point, after two years or so of ministry, people are starting to reevaluate their perceptions. I mean, Jesus is, is acting in a way that we didn't expect the Messiah to act, but, but we can't deny his power, so maybe our assumptions of the Messiah, could this really be the son of David, the promised king? So there's a buzz. But the Pharisees, they heard it. They know what people are saying. And so they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So, I mean, the Pharisees who are plotting to destroy Jesus, they got a quandary on their hands, a conundrum. I mean, Jesus is doing things that are obvious, amazing. He's ministering to people. I mean, how do you write that off? How do you excuse it away? And now people are starting to associate him with being the Messiah and starting to change their messianic expectations. And I mean, this is not working out. The public perception is something the Pharisees would need on their side if they were to make a move. In fact, we'll see several instances where they want to make a move on Jesus, but they can't because of the multitudes, because of the crowds, because of the people that are flocking around him. So they need an explanation. And they come up with a really stupid one. Well, okay, he's casting out demons. I mean, really powerful demons because this guy was mute. We couldn't do anything about that. And he just kind of like just deals with it. Okay, he's got more. But he's doing it, our explanation, is under the authority or power of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. This is an interesting phrase, Beelzebub. I probably did too much research on the origins of this particular phrase. I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole. A lot of interesting, is it's an Aramaic term to start with, so it's, it's not Hebrew. And it's, its ultimate origins, Beelzebub, or Beelzebul, um, as it's translated in other places, it, its origins is Baal, the god of the Philistines, also associated with, with certain Canaanite gods. And, and it's, it's a literal translation, is Lord of the Flies, you've heard the phrase, and the thought being, and there's two different schools of thought on it. I'll share. This, this is really not applicable to anything, but I find to be interesting. Is Some people say that the origins of the Lord of the Flies is that they said Beelzebub, making fun of, uh, that the Hebrews would make fun of these Canaanite Philistine gods by saying, uh, your God is the Lord of the Flies. And in that culture, flies would congregate mostly around excrement, piles of dung, you know, that, and that's how we view your gods. It's just the, it's the Lord of the flies. Another view is that uh, this was the God of death because a body would die and then something weird would happen. You know, larvae would come out of nowhere. Now, we, we understand how this all works, but they didn't in that day. And those larvae would turn to flies. And so, like, someone would die and out of them would come flies. And thus, that that was... Uh, the Lord of hell and death. Interesting. Um, not relevant. I hope you enjoyed those free bits of information. Beelzebub. Satan. The ruler of demons. Now, verse 25 should scare us all. Because we're told that Jesus knew their thoughts. <laughs> oh, man. What? Like, he he not only hears what I say, but he knows what I'm thinking. Yes. That's why it's important to take our thoughts into captivity. Surrender them as well to the Lord to put our thoughts on good things. So Jesus perceives. He he knows what they're thinking. And so he says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand, which is pretty logical. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself, How will his kingdom stand? Now, Jesus could have just said, you guys are are morons, but he does engage them with a bit of logic. Like, okay, let's say I am Satan. This doesn't, your your argument doesn't make sense. Kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Like, it doesn't make sense why why Satan would be casting out demons from from other people in which he has dominion over. This is just illogical. I, I do like the fact that Jesus didn't just dismiss their idiocy. But he actually addresses it. He says, verse 27, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house And plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. So Jesus is is making the point of the fact that he's not Satan. But has power over Satan, the strong man. Demonstrates his incredible power and authority. Something that's undeniable. And, And he kind of turns the argument then. Like, okay, your explanation doesn't make sense. Meaning that let's... He says... But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, and that's kind of translated a little wonky. Uh, in the Greek, it's, it's since I cast out. He's not saying if, in the sense that there's some debate on it, but it's more determined in, in regards to the language. He says, since I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God, well, you, what's the logical conclusion? Well, the, the kingdom of God is here. It's come upon you. And then the important verse for our consideration is verse 30. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. And he who is not gather with me scatters abroad. So Jesus here kind of lays down the gauntlet. He who is not with me is against me. The idea is that <clears throat> you can't be Sweden. That would be the title of the message, if I could title a message. You can't be Sweden. Sweden's been notorious in world wars for an attempted neutrality. Just leave us alone. as As a matter of fact, we'll just hold your money. We'll be the banker for everyone. You guys fight it out, we'll hold your money, and whoever wins, well, we're on your side. It's the strategy of Sweden But you know, some people take the same type of a strategy when it comes to spiritual things. We think not making a decision concerning Christ absolves us from the necessity of making a decision. That somehow we can play the middle, middle ground. And yet Jesus is removing such a notion. He's like, you're either with me or you're against me. You're either my friend or you're my enemy. There's not a middle ground here. There's no room for neutrality. Oh, I think Jesus is a good guy. And and if the Jesus thing works for you, that's great. I just got my own thing going on, and and, and it's it's all good. Again, no. Jesus is like, you're either with me or you're not. What a powerful exhortation for for many in in a culture that is, yes, changing, but still has many that try to play the middle road. That try to have enough of Jesus in their life to feel good, but not enough to to feel convicted. And yet, again, hear what Jesus says. He says, he says, it's just not me. There's no neutrality. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, therefore, so in the context of this, I say to you, so Jesus is making a declaration. And note, he personalizes it. He's not saying to the person next to you. He's saying to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Now you should pause there because that's pretty awesome. Again, I'll read it again. I say to you, every sin, every blasphemy will be forgiven men. Jesus is saying, there's nothing that you can do beyond my forgiveness. Beyond my love, beyond my mercy, beyond my grace. Whatever sin you've come in burdened by, he says every sin and every blasphemy can be forgiven. Now, he continues, but... The blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Men, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So what is this unpardonable sin? Also coined, described as the blasphemy Against the Holy Spirit. Again, there are denominational persuasions, thoughts within Christianity that carry this to inconsistent ends, truthfully false ends. Very broadly, a few caveats. First and foremost, if you're sitting here in this room or watching online or listening, hearing me speak right now, you have not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, if this Bible study is somehow aired in hell, everyone in hell has committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what is this? you got to understand in its broader understanding that there has been s- sections of divine revelation to the, the Jewish people. The, the first grand revelation was... Was there in the wilderness when the Shekinah glory of God the Father came down and filled the tabernacle. God in their midst, God the Father, God. And yet, over the period of years, what ends up happening? They rejected the revelation of the Father. And so what ends up taking place? Well, there's 400 years of silence after Malachi, and then God takes on human flesh and once again comes into the midst of the people. A second revelation. There was the Shekinah glory of the Father, and now we have the glory of the Son, Jesus, in their midst. Now, what are the religious, what are they in the process of doing? They're in the process of rejecting Jesus, and their rejection will ultimately manifest in the fact that they crucified him, right? Right? So they rejected the Father, revelation of the Father, and they're in the, they're in the process of rejecting the Son. But then afterwards, what hapsen, happens? We well, had the Shekinah glory of God in the midst of the camp. You had Jesus in human form in the midst of the people. And then you had this third revelation of God in the Spirit, filling and dwelling His people. You had the Holy Spirit. If you reject the Father, you have the Son, If you reject the Son, you have the Spirit. But if you reject the Holy Spirit, you have rejected the entirety of the triune nature of God. Like, there's nothing more for you to reject. Which is why it can't be forgiven. The only sin that can't be forgiven is just the rejection of Jesus, the rejection of God, the rejection of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which I should define. You see, the Holy Spirit within Scripture, and I can give you myriad of passages, The Holy Spirit within the world, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever alike, it doesn't really matter. He has a universal role. And that role is to convict people of sin and bring them to Jesus. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, if at that point you accept that ministry of the Holy Spirit, you come to Jesus, you give your life to him, well, then the Holy Spirit takes on a a new role. There's still a measure of conviction and bringing us back to the cross when necessary, but he indwells us and fills us empowers us, redeems us, makes us new. But within the world, the Holy Spirit has this role within within everyone, bringing them to Jesus, conviction of sin, bringing them to a Savior. And then you have to make a decision. Accept the Savior, therefore, you know, accept the ministry of the Spirit or reject it. Which is why, again, right now, no one in this room watching, listening, can commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because right now you can respond to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and accept Jesus as your Savior and be forgiven of all sin and all blasphemy. But if you die rejecting Jesus, rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit, rejecting the revelation of the Father, that can't be forgiven. Why? Because you don't want forgiveness. You've made a decision. You've rejected your Savior. You've rejected that moving of the Spirit, that influence that we all feel. And as a result, as mentioned, everyone in hell has committed the unpardonable sin. It can't be forgiven. And really, why should it be? Spend a life rejecting Jesus to then want to spend eternity with Jesus? That's an illogic. Jesus honors the wish of everyone I didn't know you. You didn't want to know me. So you'll be separated. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. So sad that there are people that feel like they're beyond the love and reach of God. It's the greatest lie that Satan's ever, ever propagated. The notion that you can't be forgiven. Or even that, worse still, that you're unredeemable. Again, there have been twisting of this passage and perversions of it that have led people into the depressive thought that, that they're beyond saving. Again, I repeat, therefore, Jesus says to you, every sin and blasphemy, will be forgiven. They can be forgiven. He wants to forgive. But if you reject him, what can he do? And for the entirety of your life, I believe the Holy Spirit will work and will convict and will move all the way till you breathe your last. He will give a chance Say, well, wait a second. How is that fair? How is it fair for someone on their deathbed to accept salvation? I accepted it at a young age. How is that fair? Well, none of it's fair. You being saved at 12 is no more fair than someone getting saved at 89. We all should go to hell. And yet Jesus declares, I will forgive any sin and blasphemy. Just accept me and respond to the moving of the Spirit. I wanted to get much further than that. It didn't happen. So, Father, thank you for your word and what it says.